so much has been revealed in these lockdowns especially. Things that's been revealed in our families, in marriages, in students' lives, in in young people's lives, in in older people's lives. Things have been revealed about church, about, about our church. Things have been revealed about Christians where, where our, our unity right now is being tested. Our, our missional outlook, are we truly on mission as the church? That, that's being tested. Our desire for worship, what will it take to stop us from coming together and gathering to worship? It's being tested. And, and then you just, you put aside all the COVID stuff for a second. I mean, just being a Christ follower can be a tough go in our culture. And we feel this exile. We've been in the book of Daniel now for a while, and, and Daniel and, he, and Israel, they're in exile. They're, they're, they're not in their home. They're strangers in a strange land. And we feel that as Christ followers, don't we? And so we ask these questions. How do I have faith? Where do I find hope? Where is life found when, when life is so difficult, when the future seems so unknown? And you bust open a book like Daniel where, where they were praying for the normal to happen. They, they weren't just praying for 14 months of, of difficulty. They were in exile for 70 years. The people are calling out, how long, oh Lord? How, how long do we have to suffer? Where is our hope? And, and God's going to step in and he's going to deal with their situation. But here's what I love about Daniel 9. God's about to reveal something to Daniel where he's going to say, listen, I'm going to bring you out of exile. But he's so loving and so wise, he doesn't just want to stop there. He, he knows that, hey, listen, a change in your scenery, an exterior change is not enough to bring real, lasting hope. Scenery, an exterior change brings nothing that's lasting. We're going to see here in Daniel chapter 9, God saying so clearly, I have a plan, a plan that's always been bigger than just getting you out of exile. A plan that's so much bigger than just a change of scenery for you. He's been in exile for his entire adult life, captured as a teenager, now spending most of his life in Babylon, in exile. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 9, look at the first couple of verses there. It says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of some guy, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what's going on here? Here's Daniel, and he's reading the scrolls, the books of Jeremiah. Daniel studying God's word. Think about this for a minute. Daniel, who, who right now we're reading Daniel's book here, where Daniel, led by the Holy Spirit, writing scripture, and he's reading God's word. Daniel, a guy who kind of regularly gets visions from God, studying God's word. And so if you're asking, hey, where do I find hope and joy and peace in this season? Maybe we start there as people who dig into God's word. 
mean, why, why would I encourage us as a church to, to be in the Word? Why would I say, hey, don't just come on Sunday and hear me preach. Like, be in the Word for yourself. Why would we preach through the Bible verse by verse, even preaching through Daniel 9? We're going to get to the last verses here. They're crazy hard verses to understand. Why preach through that? Why? Why? Because God has spoken through the authors of these books. This is God's Word to us. And so it's where we go for truth to hear of our hope, to hear where life is found, to hear the promises of God. And when, listen, when God wants you to hear his voice, when he wants to speak to you, he's most clear in his word, the Bible. So listen, make sure you dig in. Make sure you're reading. Make sure you're studying. Make sure you're talking to other people about it. Make sure you're memorizing it, praying through it. Because if you think about it, how, how much time are we intaking other things? I mean, now you've got this cool thing on your cell phone, right? On, on, on your iPhone where it can actually tell you how much time you're spending on certain apps. Scary. How much time do you spend on social media? How, how much time on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram? How, how much time on Pinterest? How, how, much, how much do you study there? How much of your life is shaped by that intake? That's it. Maybe for us as Christ followers, maybe we take the little, the little screen time app and we go, hey, you know what? For every minute I spend on this stuff, I need to spend that much time on the Word. I would challenge you. Maybe it's got to be more than that. For every minute, I've got to spend two. Martin Luther wrote a, an essay and he called it the Babylonian captivity of the church. He's saying, listen, it wasn't just Daniel in exile. It wasn't just the Israel that was captured by the Babylonians. He's saying, listen, our hearts and our minds are so easily captured by things that are not of God. And so what happens? We begin to think like the world thinks. We begin to seek after the things the world seeks after. And so the world looks in on us as Christ followers, those who are supposed to be strangers in a strange land. And they're saying, man, you guys are going after the same things I am. Why would I need Jesus? So Daniel, Daniel digging into the book of Jeremiah and, and likely he's reading in Jeremiah 25 where, where God says to his people, because you have not listened to my words, because you've disobeyed, he says, I'm going to use King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and they're going to come in and Israel will be a desolate wasteland and you'll serve the Babylonians, he says, for 70 years. Jeremiah goes on and he says, you know, after that time, Bab Babylon's going to be destroyed. And so here we have Daniel, verse 1, it says he's serving under Darius. Who's Darius? Well, we know from going back to chapter 5, Darius was the king of Syria. He came in and destroyed the Babylonians. And so now, now here it is, it's, it's 538 B.C., Babylon has been conquered. Daniel's going, wait a minute, I'm reading a bit about this in Jeremiah. And, and he's going, it's been like 68 some odd years that we've been captured. And he's saying, doing the math, seeing what's happening, knows that the time of exile is coming to an end. Jeremiah 29.10 says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 29 goes on and says, For I know the plans I have for you. This, this is the promise I've got, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
And he says, after these seven years, what are you going to do? You're going to call on me. You're going to come and pray to me and I'll listen to you and you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Daniel's reading this and it fuels his prayer. In fact, John Piper says it this way. He says, where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. Where your mind isn't overflowing with God's word, your heart probably won't be overflowing with prayer. And it seems like such a classic churchy application for a sermon, but I'll say it here. Hey, the lesson is this. Read your Bibles. Where else will we go for hope? So let's get into the word. Let's encourage each other with the word. Let's let's rest our lives on the promises of God's truth rather than listening to the lies of our circumstances. And so if you find that your prayer life is a bit rusty, it's a bit dusty, it's a bit light, then let me encourage you, begin by, I'm going to get into God's word. I'm going to start praying through God's word. I'm going to let the truth of God's word prompt my heart to pray. Maybe you start to read and you, you start to read and you say, Lord, it says here that you'll never leave me or forsake me, but I, I feel so alone in this season. So, Lord, it's, it's hard. Would you make this promise real in my life that I would know your presence? Maybe you're praying, God, I'm wrestling with joy in this season and, and you say that your, your kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Fill me with that joy, Lord. Remind me today that, that as you say in your word that my reward is in heaven and, and, and that you can use even trials to produce a hope in me. And he began to pray God's word. And it was Jesus who said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. If, if my words saturate your mind, if, if my words shape your thinking, if my words are so known to you, they just come up just as, as easily as you would quote your favorite movie or quote your favorite song, that, that God's word is flowing out of you. And listen, you, you begin to pray in a different way, in a way that brings hope and healing. This is what Daniel does. He's been reading scripture and and what he reads prompts what he says to God, and, and what he reads gives him hope. Why would it give him hope? You see, what's going to happen here, we're going to see at the end of chapter 9 that, that God's going to give him a vision of the future. Why would that give him hope? I love this. When we're reading through Daniel, there are hundreds in the book of Daniel, hundreds of detailed predictions that we see now in the past that, that historically have been fulfilled, like to the detail. And we're reminded again, why does God give us prophetic books? Why do we have apocalyptic literature? Why? It's to give us hope that, that man, if God can be that, that detailed and careful with all these predictions that we've seen happen already, he can certainly handle my life today. It's going to be okay. So we go to God's word, have an assurance of our today, an assurance of tomorrow. Because listen, every tomorrow there's two options. We either grab a hold of anxiety or we grab a hold of faith. And here's Daniel. He's a, a captive in a foreign land. He's, he's experienced hardship for, for his entire life, and yet he has a hope and a faith. Why? Because he knows, God, you're in control. God, your work will go on. And how does he know this? He knows it because he's a man of the word. He's digging into the word. 
begins to pray. And when you, when you read through that, the prayer in, in verses four to 19, you're gonna see if you study this, it's just saturated with God's word. You see him allude to Leviticus, to Deuteronomy, to Exodus, to the Psalms, to Jeremiah. He's, just pre, he's praying God's word. Look what happens, verse three and four. You've got your Bibles there, it says this. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's in God's word. He sees the promises of God. It says, and he, he turns his face. That this, literally, it's this. I gave my attention to the Lord. But I like that phrase. He turns his face. Now, have you ever been talking with somebody and, you, and they're on their phone while you're talking? Right? That's not turning their face to you, right? They're, they're not giving you their attention. They're not giving you their heart, their mind. And Daniel's saying, God, I put the phone down. I've turned my face to you to talk to you, to hear from you, to have a conversation with the creator of the universe. You've spoken to me in your word. I'm now responding to you in prayer. And he starts with this plea for mercy. Fasting, wearing sackcloth and ashes. What's that about? It's this physical way of showing a broken heart to show how broken he is over his sin. He says, I'm not even gonna eat because you're more important than food. I'm going to wear this sackcloth, this scratchy clothing. I don't want the comforts of the here and now. I'm putting ashes on my head, just representing I am ruined in my sin. Look at his prayer. I'm going to read all the way to verse 16, starting in verse 5. Here's his prayer. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his loss, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity and we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. 
O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. We're not even, not even known anymore of all who are around us. Here's Daniel. He, he reads that hope is coming. He's looking for hope. What's he start? Where's he begin? I mean, did you catch that prayer? How much of that prayer is just a broken prayer of repentance and confession? Daniel's so truthful about sin, but you start to think about it for a moment. He's saying us and me. He's including himself in this. This is Daniel. Daniel wasn't sinless. Daniel had sin. But, but, but you think about most of the people as you read through Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David. All of them, just train wrecks of sin recorded in God's Word. And then you read about Daniel's life, and here he is, this faithful guy. And his prayer, so honest, so humble, so broken by his sin. He, he identifies with the people in their sin. He, he's in exile and he's showing us, listen, how do we live faithfully? How do we have hope in the midst of an exile? Daniel doesn't blame other people. He, he doesn't distance himself from people by becoming this, this pious Pharisee. He sees his heart compared to God's holiness. And so he doesn't soft play his sin. He's brutally honest. And, and he knows that 70 years is finally wrapping up, but, but he doesn't come and look at this and say, finally, man, my parents and my grandparents were such screw-ups. I'm glad. I mean, this culture is going to hell in a handbasket, but now I get to be free. Now, what's he do? He, he exposes his heart. I mean, look, look at the phrases he uses. Look, look down at your, at your Bibles. Verse 5. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. Verse 7, our, our actions were treacherous. That word treacherous, it means we, were, we weren't just not doing what the king says. We were actually actively trying to, to go against him. Verse 8, we've, we've sinned against you. Verse 9, we've rebelled against you. Verse 10, we haven't obeyed your voice. Verse 11, we, we transgressed. It means we broke the law. We refused to obey your voice. Verse 14, not obeyed your voice. Verse 15, we've sinned and acted wickedly. Why are they in exile? It's so clear. They disobeyed God. They worshiped idols. They, they disregarded God's word. I, mean, I like how it says in, in verse five and six, not only did we not obey your word, it says, he says it a couple times, we didn't listen to your prophets. I mean, that, that one hit me. How often, I mean, we can read God's word and kind of disregard that, but, but how often when, when someone comes up and points out God's word to you, do we get defensive? Someone comes alongside and says, hey, hey, you know how God's word says we're to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave us. And man, I'm just seeing your life. You're, you're harboring this bitterness and it's killing you. And our, our first response would be, well, you don't understand. You don't know how hurt I am. Or maybe somebody comes alongside and says, hey, hey, you know, it says that we should let our speech be honoring. And, and man, your speech yesterday, man, it, it was not honoring. And and how often do we not only disregard God's word, but the people he brings into our life to say, hey, here's what God's word says. And so Daniel here, seeing this, he starts just repenting and calling sin, sin. He's reading Jeremiah. He's seeing his heart. He's seeing the heart of, of God's people. 
And what's he doing? He's calling on the Lord. He's seeking the Lord's face. And it begins here. Jeremiah 29, when it says, hey, I've got plans for you. Seek me with all your heart. It begins with repentance. We, we, we so need, we so want hope and joy and peace. Maybe today, this is where you start. Lord, here's my heart laid bare before you. Lord, here's my heart, which is so much more worse than the situation around me and the troubles I'm in. My sin has offended your holiness and your righteousness and your glory. And Daniel says in verse 7 there, he says, we have open shame. Our sin's been exposed. And like Adam and even the garden, when, when, when their sin was exposed, the, the result, first and foremost, was this shame. But rather than seeking the Lord, what did Adam and Eve do? Just like we do, we hide, we cover up, we, we scramble to cover our shame. We, we, we blame others, we, we hide, we go to perfectionism, we, we compensate with success or work or power. We run to addiction or, or eating disorders or suicide. I mean, anything, anything to avoid the shame. Daniel instead says, here it is, it's laid bare. He has this clear view of himself and a clear view of God. So like Isaiah 6, there's this moment where he's just undone by his sin. And may that be the place we start as a church. J.I. Packer wrote this, he said, ignorance of God is the root weakness of the church. Ignorance of God is the root weakness of the church. The, the root of our lack of power, the root of our lack of assurance, the root of our lack of hope and peace and joy. We don't understand who God is. So, so I would say this as, as a Canadian culture, as a Canadian church, th that we would recapture a proper view of God, that harvest Muskoka, that we would, we would remember, God, you are holy and righteous and we are not. It would be honest with God. That maybe our prayers would be more like, David, God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. God, you're so right in your verdict. You're so justified as you judge. You see, Daniel's not playing a victim here. He says, I see the character of God and it's shaping my view. And the character that, God, that Daniel sees, who God is over and over again, he says, God, you're righteous. Oh, Lord, to you belongs righteousness, he says in verse 7. In verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he's done. God, you're righteous. God, you've done right by us. That's, that's what being righteous means. God, in your, how you respond to us, how, you, how you're in relationship with us, God, you've done right by us. And then Daniel sees himself. He sees us and says, we've not done right by God. And it causes so much humility in Daniel. But it also leaves Daniel in a very tough spot. Where do you go for hope in that place? When we're exiled by sin, where's our hope? What promise can we grab a hold of in this moment? I mean, he calls out for mercy and he says, God, I'm calling out for rescue based on your promises. And he reaches this desperate place. Look at verse 19. Look at his prayer. 
Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I mean, what a prayer. God, act now. God, forgive. God, don't delay. Do it for your sake. We know we're undeserving. Do do it to bring glory to your name. Do, Do it to show everybody around how awesome you are. We're not worthy, but God, you're so worthy. And then listen, God answers that prayer. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, so the angel Gabriel shows up, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. I love this, verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. The moment you started praying, it was being answered, Daniel. As I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Where's our hope? Our hope is in that phrase there. Daniel, you are greatly loved. It's a a covenant word. It's it's God's promise to his people. Daniel, you've been answered because you're greatly loved. You're you're my, another way God would say it, he'd say, you're my treasured possession. I'm the one who rescued you and redeemed you. What grace is that? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Think about it this way. I heard it just described like this just this week. Imagine you're at the altar of your wedding day and you're standing at the altar with, with your, the person you're going to marry and you know, you know that your spouse is going to cheat on you over and over and over again and you still look at them with love-filled eyes and you say, I do. That's our gracious God. That's the covenant he's made with us. You're greatly loved. God answers Daniel's prayer. He says, hey, hey, let me give you a vision. Let me show you what's going to happen. Let me bring you hope. And here's the hope he brings. Verses 24 to 27. These, these are kind of the verses that most people center on when they think about Daniel chapter 9. They're, they're just these, these verses of, of apocalyptic writing. So let's read them now. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall come with a flood, and to the end there should be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall be put, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, that's super clear, right? Yeah, let's close in prayer. God, I'm just kidding, I'm joking, all right? Let's break this down. Let's see what's what's going on here. 
Now, now as I start, I, I'm, I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit for us, but, but as I jump in, I want to share a quote from Alistair Begg, a, a pastor, and, and, and I want to claim his quote as my quote over this as well, all right? Because as I study this, and if you can too, every commentary you read on this section will say this is some of the hardest apocalyptic writing to interpret. So if someone says to you, I got to figure it out, man, this is exactly what it means, maybe back away a bit, all right? There should be some humility. He says this. He, before he preached about this passage, he says, this is my interpretation this morning. However, I reserve the right to change my mind tonight. Further, I reserve the right to change my mind tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, or any other time. It's not an easy passage to interpret. But, but listen, God gave it to Daniel. He says, here's your hope. So, so let's break it down. Let's see, why is this a hopeful passage? Right away, it says it's talking about these weeks, and so we understand what, what what's meaning behind that that word weeks for for us. It, it'd be like us using the word dozen. Dozen represents a number. It represents twelve. For for Jewish apocalyptic writing, especially when we say weeks, it represents a number, the number seven. So 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 here, God's saying to Daniel, "Hey, the exile is going to be a bit longer than seventy years. You are going to be set free physically, but there's a longer exile that's going to last seventy times seven. Do the math." 490 years. So how, how do we interpret this? Well, well first, let, let's, let's land on what we know that's so clear. 70 years is not going to deal with the sin. The 70 years they've been in exile did not, did not take care of their sin and their transgression, but a longer period of time needed to come. When it says an anointed one will come, the Messiah will come, he'll be cut off and die and then connected to that, there's a, a, a bad ruler, this guy who comes in, and, and you can recognize that. You go, that sounds kind of familiar. Like, like that sounds like the big horned guy from, from Daniel 7 and 8. And there's some, there's some battle, some face-off between the anointed one, and, and, and the anointed one dies. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple in some ways destroyed. And, and all this long story of how God's going to put an end to sin and transgression and atone for evil. How do we work this all out? Well, let me, give you, let me give you a few ways that people have interpreted this passage. So, some would say, hey, all of this has already happened. It, it's, it's history past. And if you count the years from, from about 605 B.C. or 586 B.C., however you want to do it, and, and you count those, those years up, you get to, remember the guy we talked about last week, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? He was that, that little A antichrist that came a forerunner of the antichrist. He came and just did some horrible things. Some would say, I think that's what it's predicting. Some would say, no, no, you got to take a later date than that and, and take the date when Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, you can go rebuild the temple in 445 BC. You do that math, right? And you go, okay, let me take into account leap years and, and the Jewish calendar is 360 days. So I got to kind of add that up and I get all the days lined up and you can make the math land on the coming of Christ. And, and then you read this with an understanding, man, this is talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, some say maybe it points to AD 70 and Titus when he came and destroyed the temples. Others say, no, I think it's pointing to something even more future to Jesus' return because Jesus himself in Matthew 24, he quotes Daniel when he points to the end of the age. So it sounds like maybe there's something going on way beyond this. And, and there's so many ways you could try to fit this into place. And I'll tell you where I land. I think like a lot of prophecy, there are, there are types, there are shadows, there are, are ways it's fulfilled throughout history, just like we've said before, that many little antichrists will come before the antichrist comes. So what's this mean then? Well, remember, Daniel's looking for hope. This is the answer for him. Hey, here's your hope. So, so read verse 24 again. 
Read the verse that sets it all up. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. If you were to just read that, pull this verse out, just read that, not, not trying to do math, not trying to figure everything else out, what do you think this points to? If you were to give that verse to your kid and go, hey, read this, what do you think this might be talking about? Listen, I think that points to Jesus' death, to his resurrection, to, to our hope and for, for healing, for forgiveness. I believe that's right. So, so I would say, you know, maybe this prophecy points to, yeah, there's some stuff in history that happened that you could point to, but, but ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ and his coming to bring hope and healing and forgiveness. And I think ultimately also pointing also that it'll be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. So why would I say that? I would say we can read this passage now on the other side of the cross and we can read that looking past to our hope in the cross, looking future to our hope with sin being finally and fully dealt with the second coming of Christ. That's our hope. We read that and go, man, transgression is finished. Sin done with atoned for everlasting righteousness. And there's hope in that. So what's this say? It says this, the 70 years are not enough, but God will provide the enough. God will bring ultimate rescue. For you and me, we know this. We can say this with a hope. No matter what the circumstances are going on around us, we can say, my hope has come, and my hope is coming again. We can have hope in a world that's messed up by sin. We can have hope when our life is still battling with sin. Remember, why was apocalyptic literature given to us? To give us hope. So let me wrap this up with this. Something that we can say with a certainty. Wherever you land on how you break down those 70 weeks and 63 weeks, and all, how do you break that down? If, if you're confused by the weeks, here's a rock solid hope you can hold on to. Look at verse 16 again. It says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away. Look down at verse 18. For, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So what are we saying earlier on? That God was acting righteously when he sent them into exile. When he deals with our sin, with a holy wrath, it's because he's righteous. But what does Daniel say here? But because you're righteous, you also forgive. Think of it this way, Daniel and, and, and you and me were standing in the courtroom of God and listen, the case is stacked against us. We have been tried and found guilty. There is no retrial. There is no appeal. The evidence is irrefutable and it's a huge stack of evidence against us. So we stand in that courtroom going, is there any hope? What does Daniel do? In Daniel 9, he stands up and he appeals to the righteousness of God. God, you do right. You, you punish us because of your righteousness. You can deliver us because you are righteous. We put our hope in the mercy of God for sure, but we also put our hope in the righteousness of God. Because what do we know? We know that on this side of the cross, Hebrews 7 says that, that Jesus can save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. I like that. Hebrews says, draw near to God. Jeremiah said, seek me with your whole heart. Same, same idea. So as we stand in that courtroom, here's what it's saying. 
Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, standing with us before God on our behalf, holding this huge case file with your name on it. And he doesn't just beg for mercy. He doesn't step before God, the judge, and say, oh God, please. Can, can, one more time. I know they did it again. Can you just forgive them one more time? And, and then you can picture God, you know, there's a bit of silence, and he breaks the silence with saying, no, you know what? It's why I love in Daniel 9, Daniel appeals to God's mercy and his righteousness. Jesus in the courtroom as, a, as our perfect high priest. Why? Why? Because he has an absolutely airtight case to bring us hope and freedom. He says, listen, I'm here to represent my brother, my sister. They've sinned. The evidence is clear. They're guilty. And, and as a righteous and good judge, you say that the the wages of sin is death. And then Jesus says this, see my blood. See the cross. There are the wages. There's the payment. Father, because, you, because you're just and righteous, you, you can't take two payments for the same sin. Case closed. I love it. Hebrews says that Jesus, he sacrificed for our sins once and for all. So bring that back to Daniel. What's God saying to Daniel? Here's your hope. Not that the 70 years are over. Not that a, a pandemic might end. Not that life get back to, can get back to normal. Because listen, sin will still be there. Our hope is this. God's saying, I will take care of your greatest problem forever and for good. He's saying to Daniel, there's going to come a time when my righteousness and your sin will come to a battle and my righteousness is going to win. And on the cross, your sin will be dealt with. And so now, now we look back and we see the cross and like Daniel, we humbly repent and we stand up with hope. Knowing that Jesus can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It has nothing to do with my goodness. It has nothing to do with your record, with what you've done. It doesn't matter the depth of your sin. It doesn't matter the weight of your shame. It doesn't matter what. It's Jesus Christ. So what do we do then? What do we do with this? Well, again, in the book of Hebrews, it says, in Hebrews 10... It says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us. This is what God was saying to Daniel. This is coming. We have this confidence to enter in. It says this, let us draw near with a heart of true faith and full assurance, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts, what, sprinkled clean, our bodies washed so, so we know we can draw near. What do we do then? We hold fast, then it says. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast to the one who promised that he's faithful. And then what do we do? We draw near, we hold fast. We then stir each other up with this promise. Stir up one another with love and good works. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. I love this, I love this. Talk about apocalyptic literature. We encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we go, man, I think Jesus is returning and he's returning soon. And so what do we do? We look back to the cross for our hope. We look forward to the second coming and we don't know when that is. But we read prophecy and the whole point is this. I wanna be ready for that day. And I know that right now Jesus is alive. Right now he lives to make intercession for us. Right now we know that he's conquered sin and death and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, to establish an eternal kingdom, to put an end to all the sin and all the brokenness of our world. And my hope is this, my hope is that we'll see each other then.
So what do we do then? Let me leave you with this. And I need you to, to think through, how do I apply this? How do I, how do I run with this? And here, here it is. It's, it's dig into the word. What's that look like for you? Dig into the word. Like Daniel, find your hope there. Dig into the word. Here's another application. And then pray. Let, let that fuel your prayer life where, where your heart is filled with the word and coming out in prayer. Draw near to Christ and hold fast to the promises. Let it change the way you worship. And then lastly this, dig into the word, pray, worship, stir each other on. Let's be a church that stirs each other on to love and good deeds, that we'd be out into our community doing the work of the gospel, that we would be grabbing hold of each other and we're not, we're not pointing each other to anything but this, Jesus. We're, we're drawing each other's attention away from the, the lies of our circumstances to the truth of the hope we have in Christ. May we be that kind of a church. Let me pray. Lord, Lord we, read about, we read about your first coming that brings us hope. We read about your, that by the power of your spirit, because we've been bought by your blood, that we be people filled with joy and hope and peace. And, and we know it won't come from us, God. We're not righteous, but you are. So Lord, may we be a people that dig into your word, that call out to you in prayer, that encourage each other because we see the day is drawing near. Lord, may we fill our hearts and our minds with your promises. May we speak them out, God. May the way we speak and talk, the way we, the way we use social media, God, may we be people who point each other to the hope we have in you, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you so much. Look forward to next week. As you roll out of here, uh, a parking attendant's going to kind of draw you to, to, to tell you which one gets to go next so we can get out of here in an orderly fashion. And they're coming right now with their bright green vest. God bless you guys.